Got to get my spit shield here. All right, well, good morning, Stonebridge. I hope you guys are all doing so well. I am really, really excited to be here because I've been teaching to a camera for the last four months, and so this is the first time that I get to teach to people, and I am really, really excited about it. So thanks for coming out. Um, For those of you that I haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Andrew Hager, and I work up at Candeo Church in Cedar Falls, which is another Salt Network church. And I actually grew up in Cedar Falls, and I loved growing up there, and we kind of bounced around to some different churches. But when my family started going to Candeo, I absolutely fell in love with what God was doing there and across the Salt Network and across Iowa. I loved the fact that the church was passionate about teaching the Bible, and I loved the fact that the church was passionate about reaching the next generation, two things that I know you guys love and value here. And so, yeah, I went to you and I to be a part of the Salt Company. That was pretty much the sole reason I went there and loved it, did uh, that for a couple years, was on leadership. And then I got hired at Candeo as the junior high ministry leader. And so for the past couple of years, I've had the privilege to work with student ministry and do some other family ministry stuff. And that's been a blast. And then as, a couple, as of a couple months ago, I got hired on as the freshman ministry leader for the Salt Company. And so now I get the privilege to work with college students um, up at UNI. And so that's kind of my connection to the Salt Network and to you guys. And I feel super privileged that Matt asked me to come here and teach this morning. And so, yeah, I'm excited to open up the word with you all. And so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up to Genesis 32. That's where we're going to be at this morning. It's just the next couple chapters in your guys' Genesis series. And so as you guys are turning to Genesis chapter 32, I just want you guys to think about this question just for a minute. What does God do in our moments of crisis? In like our most critical, desperate moments, maybe anxiety-filled moments, how is God working? How does God work in the midst of our darkest, lowest, like hardest moments? And for some of you, I don't have to say much more before you're already thinking about the times in your life that have been some of the hardest to walk through. And I'm also aware that a lot of you may be in one of those times right now. In the midst of this world pandemic where jobs are unsure, where school for your kids are unsure, where so many unknowns that you may even be right now in a trial that's harder than anything you've had to walk through. And my question for you is this, is how does God respond to us in those moments? In those desperate moments, how does God answer our prayers? Well, that's actually the situation that Jacob, who's kind of the main person that we follow through our narrative this morning, finds himself in. He's in his lowest, most desperate situation of his entire life, and we get to see how God interacts with him. And so if you guys look with me at Genesis 32, verse 1, it says this. It says, Jacob went on his way, and God's angels met him. When he saw them, Jacob said, this is God's camp. And so he called that place Mahanaim. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir and the territory of Edom. He commanded them, this is what you are to say to my lord Esau. This is what your servant Jacob says. I have been staying with Laban, and I have been delayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male and female servants. And I have sent the message to inform my Lord in order to seek your favor. And so last week, we saw that God told Jacob to come back home, to come away from Laban, who is the man he'd been working for for 14 years in exchange for his two daughters in marriage. And God promised Jacob two things. He promised that he would protect him and that he would bless them. 
All right, and last week, Matt talked about kind of the devil's guide to relationship and how, like, tumultuous and all the tension there was between Jacob and Laban. And so even though Jacob obeyed God and he did go back to his hometown, he did it in a way that deceived and dishonored Laban. He fled in the middle of the night. He took his daughters, he took his possessions away from him, and Laban pursued him in anger to kill him. But because God had promised to Jacob that he would bless him and protect him, God intervened with Laban and he said, Hey, Laban, do not say or do anything good or bad to Jacob. Like, you don't get to harm him. And so Jacob's life was spared last week. They ended up reconciling, and Jacob got Laban's blessing to go back home. And that's where we find Jacob today. He's on his way home, having just left his father-in-law. He'd taken all his possessions and all his family, and he had, like, just narrowly escaped a deathly interaction with Laban. But in Jacob's mind, the worst was yet to come. Because at home, on his way home, waiting for him, was his brother Esau. Like that brother who he stole his birthright from. And then later in life, who he deceived their father into stealing his blessing from. Like that brother Esau, whose like anger and rage against Jacob was the reason he had to flee his hometown in the first place. And so that's what was waiting for Jacob at home. And I don't know what critical moments that you guys have had in your life. I don't know what has caused you guys to cry out to God what has caused you all to lose sleep at night, but I promise you that Jacob can sympathize with you at this moment. Jacob doesn't even know if he's going to live to see tomorrow and everything he loves most, his family, his wives, his children, his possessions, everything that he has worked so hard to accumulate over the last 14 years is in jeopardy of being taken from him. And so it's in this low, desperate moment that Jacob turns to the one thing that he's turned to his entire life, planning and scheming. All of Jacob's life has been filled with schemes and deceiving other people, and so he runs to that. And in verses 3 to 5, we see that Jacob sends messengers ahead of him to Esau and other sacrifices and offerings, like hoping that maybe Esau might forgive him, that in some way that might assuage Esau's anger. And so Jacob, he develops this plan, he starts like executing a little bit, but where does that leave him? Look with me at verse 7. After Jacob sends his initial plans and his initial messengers out, it says this about Jacob. It says, Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people with him into two camps, along with the flocks, the herds, and the camels. He thought if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, the remaining one can escape. And so we see that Jacob is afraid and greatly distressed. And so he turns to even more planning. He divides his families into two camps, thinking, man, if Esau attacks one, maybe the other one will escape. And we see that in this moment, when Jacob got pressed, like when the situation got even harder, when there's even more anxiety welling up in his heart, he turns to control. He runs to planning. He runs to the things that he can control. And I wonder if some of us are the same way. I wonder if some of you know the exhaustion that comes, that when your back is up against the wall or when you don't quite know how the future is going to turn out, if you run to the things that you can control, if you realize, like Jacob, how empty and how stressed you still feel with all of that. Jacob is feeling the exhaustion of doing all that he can do and still not knowing if he's going to make it to tomorrow. And so in that moment, when the thing he has put his trust in his whole life, which is his plans and his schemes, when that fails him, when he's still feeling distressed, 
He turns to something new, and he begins to pray. And so look what Jacob prays in chapter 32, verse 9. It says this, Then Jacob said, God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, Go back to your land and to your family, and I will cause you to prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. Indeed, I crossed over the Jordan with my staff, and now I have become two whole camps. Please rescue me from my brother Esau, for I am afraid of him. Otherwise, he may come and attack me, the mothers, and their children. You have said, I will cause you to prosper, and I will make your offspring like the sand of the sea, too numerous to be counted. And so in this moment, Jacob's fear was not so great that his faith begins, becomes irrelevant, and so he begins to cry out to God. And this prayer, it matters to God. And it should matter to us too, because even in his fear, even in his distress, even in this moment where Jacob is still putting his trust in other things, he prays some things that are incredibly honoring to the Lord. And this prayer teaches us how to pray in those desperate moments too. So if you want to know what to say to God, if you want to know how to talk to God in your moments of anxiety, if your moments of distress, listen to what Jacob says here. And the first thing he prays in this, in verse 10, he acknowledges the grace and the blessing already in his life. The first thing to pray in our moments of distress, in our crucial moments in our life, is to thank God for the blessings he's already given us. In verse 10, Jacob says, I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you've shown. Jacob recounts the fact that he only had a staff. That is the only thing he owned in his possession at one point. And after going to Laban, now he has two entire camps of families and possessions. And so God's hand of blessing has clearly been on Jacob. And I'm telling you guys, if God's hand of blessing has been on Jacob, it is even more so on us. Because what's true for Jacob, that God has blessed him lavishly, is far more true for us because he has sent his son to die for us. And here's what that means. It means that there is no Christian in this room who has gone through trials or suffering so great that it outweighs the blessing of what Jesus did for us on the cross. There is nothing we could go through in our life. There is no trial so great. There is no suffering so deep that could ever outweigh the blessing and the mercy that we have been shown because Jesus died for us. Our suffering will never be able to outweigh the glory we have in Jesus. And so the first thing to train our hearts to believe in moments of distress, in our desperate moments, is to believe that even if God does nothing else for us, he has already done enough. If God doesn't answer another prayer request, if our situations never get any better, if we are desperate for the rest of our lives, God has done enough because he sent his son to die for us. Our suffering will never outweigh the glory we have in our Savior. The second thing we learn to pray in these moments, these desperate moments, is to acknowledge that the promises of God are still true. See, Jacob doesn't answer his prayers in his own, anchor his prayers in his own desires. He anchors them in the explicit promises of God. He says, he reminds God of the promises that he made. He's like, God, you promised me I would make it home safely. 
You promised me that you would bless me and I would become a great nation. And in this moment, Jacob actually teaches us something that is true about God's character, and it's the same truth that God teaches us in Numbers 23, 19. Look what it says. It says, God is not a man that he might lie, or a son of man that he might change his mind. Does he speak and not act, or promise and not fulfill? This verse teaches us that God does not waste his breath. There is not one single promise penned in all of Scripture that will not fulfill because that's not what God is like. It is not in his character to go back or to not fulfill a promise. And so it is true that Jacob can anchor his prayers in those promises. And again, what's true for Jacob is even more true for us because God sent his son to seal his promises. And it's because of his son's blood and it's because Jesus died on the cross that we can have full trust and hope that God will come through on the promises in his word. Promises like, I will be with you always until the end of the age. Promises like, I will never leave you or forsake you. Promises like, I will work out all things for your good and my glory. Real, tangible promises written in God's word, sealed by the blood of his son. In our most desperate moments, in the trials of our lives, in the things that are so hard for us, God's promises are still true, and we can anchor our prayers in them. And so Jacob prays, and he acknowledges that if God does nothing more for him than he's done enough, and he anchors his prayers in the promises of God, and after he prays, he moves into action. And so in verses 13 through 23, Jacob kind of like executes the plan. He sends messengers ahead of him to Esau. He sends sacrifice after sacrifice, offering after offering, hoping that somehow maybe Esau won't be angry anymore. That after seeing all these gifts that Esau might forgive him. And so Jacob just like puts all of his hope in this procession. In this procession, he sends his family, he sends everything, and he's left alone for the night. And so all by himself, probably unable to sleep, mind racing with thoughts of what's going to happen tomorrow, God meets him in this moment. And it's in this quiet moment that God answers Jacob's prayer. And so if you want to know how God answers this type of prayer, look at verse 24. It says this, it says, Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not defeat him, he struck Jacob's hip socket as they wrestled, and it dislocated his hip. And then he said to Jacob, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. What is your name? The man asked. Jacob, he replied. Your name will no longer be Jacob, he said. It will be Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. And then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he answered, why do you ask my name? And he blessed him there. And so Jacob is left all alone, and then this man comes. All right, and if you guys have little headings in your Bible like mine does, it probably gives away that that night Jacob's opponent wasn't a man. It was God himself. And so God's answer to Jacob's prayer in his most desperate, vulnerable moment was to come and to wrestle him. And if we're being honest, that sounds like the worst response ever. <laughs> like, if you guys are in a trial right now, if you feel desperate, if you feel burdened, I'm sure that the last thing that you would want of God is for him to come and wrestle you. 
That sounds exhausting, and I get that you'd probably rather not. And so why would we want to follow a God who responds like that? Why on earth would we want to follow a God whose response in our most vulnerable, in our most desperate, critical moments is to come down and to wrestle us? Why would we follow a God like that? I actually think that God coming down to wrestle Jacob that moment was actually an incredible gift and an incredible blessing. And there's three reasons why. Here's the first reason that I think that God responding to Jacob's prayer this way is actually a gift. Jacob's struggle with God actually freed him from the despair of his situation. If you think about it, when Jacob's mind was so like entrenched in the circumstances, when all he was thinking about was Esau and what was going to happen in his plans and his schemes, Jacob's anxiety and distress was the highest it had ever been. One commentator says this, Jacob began the night believing that his greatest need was to escape from Esau, but he ended the night believing that his greatest need was to trust in the blessing of God's promise. And what changed from fearing man to trusting God's word was a prolonged and painful wrestling with God. Sometimes God will wrestle with his people to show them that their greatest need will never be met in their life circumstances, but in him alone. Anything that shifts our gaze away from earthly things into the things of the Lord is a gift to us. I'm sure that Jacob was probably really frustrated and the thought of staying up all night to wrestling was probably exhausted and was probably the last thing he wanted to do. But God knew that the best thing for Jacob in that moment wasn't to keep worrying about Esau all night, but was to shift his focus to God, even if that meant wrestling with him. To momentarily take away what your heart loves most, what your heart is concerned with most, To move it towards the thing that it needs most, which is relationship with God, is a huge blessing. Anything that takes, that shifts our gaze from the things of this earth to the things of this Lord is a gift, even if that means unanswered prayers and wrestling with God. The second reason why I actually think it's an incredible gift that God would respond to Jacob in this way is because it shows that his strength is enough. It shows that God's strength is enough for us. You see, God could have killed Jacob that day. In verse 30 of this chapter, Jacob says, I saw God face to face, yet my life was spared. God let him live, though he could have killed him like that. But Jacob didn't live that day because he overpowered God. Jacob lived that day because God gave him strength to sustain him in the struggle. And even though God was the one wrestling him, God was also the one strengthening him. If God was wrestling with his left arm, then he was strengthening him with his right arm. And here's why that's significant. This would be a lesson that Jacob could take with him for the rest of his life. Because if Jacob realizes that he could wrestle with God, like literally Yahweh, the creator of the world, if he's able to overcome that, then literally anything else in his life is not near as impossible And if God's strength is enough to overcome even a wrestle with God, then surely God's strength is enough for him to overcome the rest of his life's circumstances. But it took a night of wrestling with God for Jacob to get that. And so the second reason that I think it's a great gift is that it helped Jacob see that God's strength is enough. 
And lastly, the third reason that I think it's actually an incredible gift and mercy that God responded this way is because it gave Jacob an opportunity to repent. See, Jacob, to this point, he'd spent his whole life deceiving and planning and scheming to get his own way to try to obtain blessings from man, all the while totally ignoring the blessings from God. Like, if you remember, Jacob started his life holding on to the heel of Esau, and then he stole his birthright, and then he stole his blessing, and then he got wealthy using Laban's flocks and kind of ran away with his daughters and his household God, and Jacob did all of this to get what he wanted. Jacob has spent his entire life searching for a blessing from God apart from God. But that night, in the midst of an all-night-long struggle with God, Jacob realized that the thing he was so desperately chasing, the thing that he wanted more than anything else, was actually found in God himself. In verse 26, when Jacob demands a blessing from God, he holds on to him and says, I will not let you go until you bless me. That's not a selfish man begging for a handout. That's actually radical repentance on the part of Jacob. Because for the very first time in his whole life, he's taking his trust away from the blessings of this earth and putting his trust in the blessing of God. Jacob repents. And for the first time, he puts his trust in God. But that only came after a struggle. God did not wrestle Jacob that night, and he doesn't wrestle us to make us suffer. He wrestled Jacob, and he'll wrestle with us so that we would realize that he alone is where our blessing comes from. He wrestled Jacob away from his life circumstances and to himself in that moment, and God wants the same for you because God's not willing to let you settle for lesser things by putting your hope and trust God is jealous for the hearts of his sons and his daughters and he longs that you would put your trust in him and he longs that you would be in relationship with him and he will do whatever is necessary for your hearts to believe that. And here's the thing. Jacob's wrestling with God didn't actually change his life circumstance in Jacob's perspective. He still didn't know what was going to happen with Esau tomorrow. And he still didn't know how this whole situation was going to turn out. But what he did know is that God was in it with him and that it would be God's strength that gets him through and not his own. And so Jacob has been reminded of the promises of God. He realized his greatest need was in God himself. And for the first time, he puts his trust in God. Now, what happens with Esau? What happens the next day when he meets his brother? Well, look with me at Genesis 33, verse 1. It says, now Jacob looked up and saw Esau coming toward him with 400 men. And so he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two slave women. He put the slaves and their children first, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph last. He himself went on ahead and bowed to the ground seven times until he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet him, hugged him, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Then they wept. And when Esau looked up and saw the women and the children, he asked, Who are these with you? He answered, The children of God has graciously given your servant. Then the slaves and their children approached him and bowed down. Leah and her children also approached and bowed down. And then Joseph and Rachel approached and bowed down. And so Esau said, What do you mean by this whole procession I met? To find favor with you, my lord, Jacob answered. I have enough, my brother, Esau replied. Keep what you have. 
And so Jacob had worried and planned and schemed and put all of his hope in this procession for Esau. And what was his brother's response to it? Keep your stuff. I don't need it. I don't want your stuff. I forgive you. Jacob's fears and worries were completely unfounded the entire time. And I believe that God did this to show Jacob that it was his prayers that were useful, not his plans. God softened Esau's heart in a way that no offering, no sacrifice, no apology ever could. And I believe God was doing this to reinforce to Jacob that it is God's hand that changes the world, not the plans of man. It was Jacob's prayer that God blessed, not his plan. And then look what happens in verse 18 of 33. It says, After Jacob came for Padan Aram, he arrived safely at Shechem in the land of Canaan and camped in front of the city. Jacob arrived safely at Shechem. He made it home, just like God promised him last week. Jacob was never actually in danger of being killed by Esau because God is not a God who goes back on his promises and God promised Jacob that he would bless him and keep him safe. But Jacob's angst and fear and worry only exposed, not that God wasn't in control, but that Jacob didn't trust his God. And so what does that look like for us today? We might not be waiting for our brother to come kill us, but what does it look like for us to be in our waiting for Esau moments? Those moments when we don't know if the cancer is going to go away. When we don't have any certainty of our financial future, or we don't know how our marriage or some other relationship is going to make us through, what do we do in our waiting for Esau moments? How does God respond to us today? Well, that day, God saw the brokenness and hardships of Jacob's situation, and he came down to wrestle him. But today, God saw our brokenness, and he sent his son to rescue us. You see, we can wrestle with God because Jesus has already wrestled with God in our place. On the night that Jesus was to be betrayed and crucified, Jesus wrestled with his father in the garden in ways that you and I never could. He begged his father, is there any other way that this can happen? Is there any way that this cup could pass for me? And Jesus wrestled with his father. But his father chose not to remove the suffering for Jesus, but to have him walk through it for our salvation. And Jesus wrestled with the father on the cross when he took all of our guilt and all of our shame and all of the things that make our situation so desperate and heavy. Jesus wrestled with them in our place on the cross. And three days later, when he came back to life, he came storming in victory over them. We can wrestle with God because Jesus has wrestled with the Father in our place. Jesus has already walked the road of suffering. Jesus has already walked in your weighty, desperate situations, and he came out victorious, and now he gives us his strength. We can wrestle and we can struggle with God because we have Jesus' strength. And so as I invite the band to come back up to worship again, I just want you guys to think about that in our darkest moments, in our most critical moments when we don't know how it's going to play out, you can know that the promises of God are still true. And God responds in those moments by giving us himself. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much 
that you care about our most desperate moments. That in our most critical moments, in our waiting for our brother Esau moments, you do not leave us. In fact, you draw closer than ever. Father, I pray that you would give us strength to trust your promises. Father, I pray that you would embolden our faith to trust you. And Jesus, I thank you that all of those promises, all of the hope and security that we have, we can absolutely trust because of what you did for us on the cross. Jesus, I thank you for being our Savior, and I pray that we would continually um, trust in you. We love you, and we pray this in your name. Amen.